Oh, hey, what's going on? It's Puno, and you're listening to Girl Boss Radio. Oof. Okay. Figuring out what job, what career you want, that's tough. But when you actually know what job you want, applying and trying to get that job, that's even harder. You have to have your cover letter. You have to have your resume. You got to be great at the interview. You got to want the job, but you don't want to be too thirsty. You want to be confident, but you don't want to sound arrogant. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like a lot of stuff. It's really tough. At my company, I Love Creatives, every week people post jobs and we see hundreds of applicants for just one job. According to the Jobvite recruiting report, one in six candidates who applied for a job were asked for an interview, which means on I Love Creatives, we get like 100 to 200 applicants per job. And that means 16 to 33 people will actually be called for an interview. It's not a lot. Well, in the course of one year, our guest today, Andrea Dalzell, went on over 70. That's right, you heard me. 70 job interviews to finally land her dream job as a nurse who's on the ground and not behind a desk. This is important because Andrea uses a wheelchair. So in addition to just dealing with this grueling job hunt process, she also has to deal with hiring managers who have unconscious bias. And you'll hear in this episode that this isn't the first time Andrea's ability has been dismissed. Actually, in high school, a school counselor told her that as a black woman with a disability, she has three strikes. (sighs) That just pisses me off. But despite that, Andrea ultimately proved them all wrong. And she became the first registered nurse in New York State to use a wheelchair. So for those of you that are on the job hunt, not all of you are going to be facing the same hurdles as Andrea, but she has so many great practical tips that just can be applied to anyone. And also for the folks on the other side, the hiring managers that might need to check their biases. Actually, according to HireVue in 2019, 40% of hiring decisions are influenced by unconscious bias. 40%. In this episode, I really wanted to know, how did Andrea get all 70 of those interviews? But then, how did she deal with 70 rejections? What did she do to persevere, to not let anger win, to not lose confidence in herself? to not give up. I feel like I've teased you enough, right? Yeah. Okay, let's get into it. We have been diving into everything that you've done and you were the first registered nurse who uses a wheelchair in New York City, but also you were Miss Wheelchair in New York City in 2015. But I'm like, wait a minute, what is Miss Wheelchair? (laughs) So (laughs) Miss Wheelchair New York is like a pageant 
that's not really a pageant. It's really about the advocacy work of the individual and what they're doing for their community or what they would like to do for their community and giving them yeah. a platform to be able to do it. So I won Miss Wiltshire New York 2015 and my platform was yeah. life, liberty, and the pursuit of access. <laughs> it was just an empowerment move and it was a way for me to be able to say, I've had enough of not having my voice heard. Let's dive into that. You were diagnosed with transverse myelitis at age five. And can you describe what that is? So the best way for me to describe it to anyone is to think about your spinal cord. And it's a little graphic. It's like taking a match or a lighter and at the end of it, lighting your spinal cord on fire and seeing how far it goes up and how many nerves it can damage. So that's pretty much what happened. My spinal cord was inflamed and it damaged my spinal cord up until T10, which is about a little bit below mid spine. Mm. And I was still able to walk for a long time, but I used like braces and crutches. And then as I got older, I was just like, a wheelchair is just more convenient. So by the time I was four years old, I was using a wheelchair full time. I'm, how was that pain when you were five? I mean, it sounds horrendous. Yeah, it is. It is almost as if your body is constantly in attack mode and it's attacking yourself. <laughs> and oh my God. at a young age, you are told to take pain medication and do the best that you can to live, to survive. And pain medication would make me woozy, like out of it. So my mom would say, you have to make a decision. Do you want to be out living life? Or do you want to be hopped up on pain medication? Like you have to learn how to live with one or the other. And I'm sorry, but this is what it is. Oh, mom, gosh, got real on you. She did. At a young age, too, she was like, you have to grow up. I'm here with you, but you have to figure it out. And how old were you when she told you that? From the beginning, maybe five or six, like not long after she laid it out for me, which sucks for a kid, but it yeah. set me up for success that... I hated her for back then. <laughs> you're like, what? Woman, I was in your belly five years ago, and now you're telling me I gotta be an adult about this? My goodness. So you lost the ability to walk at 12, and that was around the time your teachers are asking you, what do you wanna do when you grow up? How did that affect your goals and your career aspirations? At a young age, you get asked all these questions, right? What do you want to be? You change your mind a thousand and one times. Now imagine a child with a disability where your limitations are automatically projected onto them. It's like saying, well, you can't be a doctor or you can't be this because you can't walk or you can't talk or you can't communicate in a certain way. So children with disabilities are automatically placed into a box just by perception. And then we're going into the school system where we're saying, we don't know how to accommodate our work for you to be able to learn. Mm -hmm. And now that child is stuffed into another box and passed along the line. And there's no actual answer or solution that's coming about. The same thing happened for me. It was like, as a child, it was just being placed in the box from counselors or even the word special education. I wasn't special ed, I had a disability and you automatically get labeled as such. And those yeah. labels then overpowered anything that I would have been because my disability was supposed to speak louder than anything else. And it just never sat right with me. Thank God for mom because mm -hmm. I didn't know what life looked like for me. No one can tell me what life looked like for me. I didn't even see myself on TV. I think I would just be so pissed. Yeah, I mean, but that's how the view of the disability world is anyway. It's either we're angry, we're depressed, we're not really out and visible. And the ones that are, oh, they're okay. And it's just because of the fact that we're not even included in everyday life. We're not employed. It's just 
one bad thing after the other and we're here and we're creative and we are making a way for ourselves. Yeah. Everybody was telling you, you can't be a doctor, you can't be a nurse, but yet you were the first registered nurse who uses wheelchair in New York City. So how did that come about? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that my education was worth everything to me. And it was what was instilled into our lives. Your education, they can't take it away from you. So as long as you're educated, go for it. I invested in my education and I made sure that whatever was supposed to be for me was going to be for me. Yeah. And I wanted to go to school to be a doctor. Not always. It took a long time to get to that point. Well, and then, tell me about why that took a long time. Because I hated my doctors or I associated doctors with pain that I wanted nothing to do with them. I told my orthopedic doctor who came to my junior high school graduation that I was going to come back as a lawyer and sue him for all the pain that he put me through. <laughs> he put in my memory book, please, anything but a lawyer. <laughs> really? Did. Oh. And so it changed my mind. I went into high school thinking, okay, if I'm not going to be a lawyer, I turned around and started studying biology, life science, and went into college thinking I'm going to be a doctor instead, and I'm going to find a cure to pain, or I'm going to find the cure to paralysis. And... In going that route, I didn't know if I wanted to really invest in being a doctor. And I took some classes and did not love the model that physicians work off of. It's every person is disease-based. I'm looking at you as the problem versus looking at you as a human being. Oh, interesting. Right. Now I realize why doctors never really knew how to communicate with me. And it was based on the fact that they learn how to treat a disease process and not treat the human being. It's more of, let me just look at through the cards to see which thing you are versus holistically as a human what is going on from top to bottom, inside and out. You know, it's very cut and dry in the medical world. And some doctors are able to like really branch out and get away from that. But you really see that with nurses in general, we take into account the whole person's dynamic. We're not gonna send you back out into the world knowing that you're not gonna stick to a routine that doesn't follow your lifestyle. My disability doesn't rule me. It's how am I going to incorporate my disability to the lifestyle that I want to live? And nurses know how to plan that out because they see it every day. And that's the big difference. So when did that shift happen for you? How did you realize that was the direction you wanted to go? It was gradual and it was over time. It wasn't like I had seen nurses and with disabilities before. It was just, I'm going to apply to nursing school. It's funny that this comes up because I was just thinking about it today that it actually took me a year before I actually got into nursing school because I procrastinated so badly. <laughs> what do you mean? You're like vacuuming, not putting in the application? <laughs> not putting in the application. Like I went into the testing office and they told me that the deadline had passed, but the director at that moment was putting in all the accessible accommodation testing for this test that I needed. And she was like, do you need accommodations? And I was like, I need extended time because I have testing anxiety. And she said, give me all your information right now. Let me put it in. Wow. That was just like, okay, this is meant to be. I took the test a week later. I crammed to take this test. And then I missed a deadline to the nursing program. <laughs> because oh, I was just no. procrastinating. And it took me another year to actually like get everything in down to the wire. 
don't know if it was subconsciously my body just telling me that I wouldn't be able to do it or because I didn't see that this can happen. Yeah, we need to unpack that. What is testing anxiety for you? I think we all feel it when we're going into an exam, that nervousness, like what if you didn't study enough? But for me, it would be exacerbated to the point of I'm having a whole panic attack before an exam. Even though I've Mm -hmm. studied for as long as I possibly could, gotten all the information, it's easier for me to be an audio learner versus sitting there reading a textbook. And if I'm reading something nine times out of 10, if I'm not hearing it, I'm not understanding what's actually being presented to me. So for me, it just triggers my testing anxiety. I don't know if I'm gonna comprehend the questions the way that I need to and get out the information that I have. Mm -hmm. What would you have told Andrea at that time now that you are looking back? You'd swoop in and be like, girl. We are gonna get you a calendar with a driving (laughs) board. And multicolored pencils and pens. And every time you get an email invite, you're going to make sure you're adding it to your calendar, not only on your phone with two alerts to remind you, but also have it visually in front of you. I love that because nobody teaches you how to be organized and figuring out how to balance your time is something that's specific to each person because everybody works differently. Everybody learns differently. But it's also something that you have to make fun. Like, it needs to be cute or you're not going to want to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Or even with a to-do list, right? Like, when you mark off something that you've gotten done, it's like, oh, I've accomplished a task today. So for me, it's like all the green things are done. All the yellow things are like almost done. And one red thing with you is being done right now. It's like, check that off when I'm done. (laughs) I wish that there was an app that you could check off and it was just like, like, yeah. Like a whole party for getting yeah. it done. Yes. That's ah, accomplished. Tequila shots. Yes. I've washed the dishes. Another shot. This episode is brought to you by Vitruvi. They are designers of beautiful diffusers and essential oil products. I've got one and it's nice. And I'm actually here with the CEO and co-founder of Vitruvi, Sarah Panton. Hey, Sarah. Hi. So why is scent so important in our homes? I think that scent is so underutilized. It's just this other layer of personalization that we add to our space. So a way to take up space through your home and set the tone for the energy and and how we want to feel. Whether that looks like something really refreshing in the morning, something kind of calming in the evening, it's really a reflection of who we are. And much like the bespoke aroma for your perfume or the cologne that you choose, I believe that scenting can have that same customization to your space. And then it's also so beautiful and unique. It's almost as if it's a statement piece that kind of doubles as decor. Why was that important to you? Personally, I'm a huge fan of design and I just believe that in less but better, creating a product that goes in someone's space should be intentional and it should be beautiful. And while it's also functional, it should add a level of sophistication to a room and also feeling like you're elevating your experience by investing in something of high quality. Mm -hmm. My husband even noticed that the cord that you used was just like a softer cord. Mm -hmm. There's really so many details. Can you tell me a little bit about the stone? 
Mm-hmm. So it's a porcelain stone that we do uncoated and then paint. And then the inside component holds the water that diffuses it. Yeah. I mean, it honestly, it really is super thoughtful. How do you use scent in your own space? I've been using scent to set the tone of my day and to try to break up different rituals throughout my day. So I've been using our boost blend in the morning in my stay diffuser, which is in my kitchen. It's our longest lasting diffuser. It goes for 18 hours. And then in the afternoon at my desk, I've been kind of switching between grove and retreat. Having those two blends are both very fresh and kind of bring the outdoors in. And so add a little bit of escapism while I'm at my desk and really prompts me to take deep breaths. It smells like a spa. And in the evening, I love diffusing our sleep blend. And I usually put it on at about an hour before we're going to go to sleep and close the door to the bedroom. And it sort of pre-sense the space. And then when you walk in, it's a nice reminder that you're getting ready to wind down and go to bed. Is that a reason why you wanted to create this company? Mm. We created Vitruvi to help people personify their spaces more with aroma. To think about creating a home scenting system, almost like you would a sound system creating different moods in different spaces like you do with music. It's another layer of dimension that talks about who you are and how you want to feel and changes your mood, just like, you know, your favorite, your favorite song does. Well, this sounds great, right? Visit Vitruvi.com backslash girlbossradio and use the code girlboss20 to get 20% off your next purchase. That's V-I-T-R-U-V-I dot com slash girlbossradio and use code girlboss20 for 20% off your next purchase. You went to school, you graduated, now you're trying to search for a job. And I read that you were denied over 70 nursing jobs. First of all, even applying, even going on interviews for 70 jobs. How did you feel going through all of that? Even though every single employer has an EEO statement, which says we don't discriminate, they all do it. And they do it because no one's trained on how not to do it. So when you're thinking about how I'm going through these interviews, people are not realizing that someone with a disability can actually roll into their office and ask for a job and be qualified for it. And I had to have that mindset from the very beginning. It's trying to understand that they don't know what my wheelchair means and what it can do, and they only know what they're exposed to. So therefore, I need to teach them as well as also showing them that I'm capable of doing the job. Did you just bring it up right away? So no. At the the first, like, one to ten interviews, I was very quiet about it. I didn't think anything of it. But then on the 11th interview, I started to ask the same questions. Is there anything that you've seen in my background that might cause some concern? And is there any issues that I need to address while I'm here? And they would all say no. So then from the 20th interview to 30th, I'm like, can you show me the floor? Can I view where I'm going to be? Let me make sure that I can get around because I'm interviewing you just as much as you're interviewing me. And then from 40 to 50, I'm like, I know the elephant in the room is that I'm in a wheelchair. Do you have any questions? In which point, if HR is in the room, they're all saying, no, no, you don't have to discuss. But then if I don't discuss it, you're automatically able to assume or presume something about me without me addressing it. And I'd rather you tell me what you need and what can I address right now? Yeah. I remember hearing one time when I rolled in for an interview, and they were like, there's a young lady in a wheelchair here to interview for a nursing position. 
and he said, in a wheelchair. And they're like, nurse can't be in a wheelchair. Send her in. I remember hearing that before I even rolled into the office and I'm like, hi, good morning, I'm so-and-so. And automatically knowing I was being written off without even looking at my resume, getting to know me or asking any questions. What do you feel like is the biggest misconception that employers have about people who use a wheelchair? It's more than just employers, right? Because we forget that we're human beings first. My disability now puts me in a subcategory saying that, no, she's not capable. But you don't know that. Nothing in the world shows you that I'm incapable. You're not exposed to it in media. You're exposed to tragedy, but you're not exposed to the triumph. So therefore, you're able to make presumptions and assumptions just from the tragedy that you're shown through media or movies. And therefore, I'm rolling into an office asking for a job based on the perceptions that the world has put out about me, but not actually knowing me, not actually understanding wheelchairs, disability. So how did you advocate for yourself then after you're just getting denied over and over again? I was really, really lucky. I signed up for a, a social media course. It was being given by an influencer in the health field. Her name is Katie Duke. And I went in there and I was like, it's very hard to be known in the disability community for my advocacy, for being Miss Wheelchair New York, for doing all the things that I've done. And then on the flip side, the able-bodied world, I'm no one. I'm not seen as anything. It's a very hard duel to live. Like, you know me. <laughs> right. I have this wheelchair. <laughs> they're like, they're praising you and they want to be with you and they want to take pictures and they need to get all of your advice because you've made it. And on the other hand, I haven't made anything. I haven't gone anywhere. Or at least that's what I'm feeling for myself. Yes, I've laid the framework to getting through higher education, but then on this other side, I still can't get a job. So going to that social media marketing course was like, okay, I'm learning how to do it from the healthcare aspect and I'm learning how to use social media to help build my platform. So I'm gonna use it and I'm gonna start talking about my interview process. And that's all I did. So every single interview, I was like, interview number 28. I just, I'm going in happy and then I'm going to come out and tell you exactly how I felt, what was happening. And I documented that. And it was such a real series for people to go through with me to say, there were some interviews I was coming out crying because I automatically knew I wasn't getting the job. I automatically knew that the moment that person saw me, I was written off. And if I say it, someone's bound to hear me. Someone's bound to help me put my voice out there. And if I'm saying it, someone else is probably going through this too. I cannot be the only one. And I wasn't, and I'm not. I think also just going through the job process, especially right now, you're definitely not alone. And obviously you're going through a different circumstance, but I think everybody can learn from how do you approach preparing yourself and arming yourself. Now that you're a pro at these job interviews, what do you do to prepare? Yeah, so I had my resume professionally done twice. So two separate people took a look at all of my credentials and they gave me two separate resumes. So depending on where I'm going or what I'm looking for, I will alter whichever resume that I'm going to submit. I also yeah. had them pre-write a cover page for me. And those are golden tickets that, that gets you in the door. So for me, just the interviews were great, but imagine how many applications you have to put through in order to get those interviews. So I was putting through at least 100 to 200 applications a day. A day? Day. Dang, your mouse must have been worn out. <laughs> 
But I really wanted clinical hands-on because my goal at the time was to be a NP, a nurse practitioner. Yeah. So when you're preparing for it, your resume has to be on point. Make sure that you are actually going to get the interview. That's the first part. So make sure your resume is detailed, that you're pulling in things that they want from the job description, and that you can actually get the interview. That's just half the battle. Honestly, I don't think people really understand how much the resume is seriously your ticket into at least the actual process. You said that you got it professionally done again. Can you explain the difference between your first draft and the professionally done one? Yeah, so I had just bought a template, like a $2 template from someone's resume site. I bought it, I yeah. put all my stuff in and I was getting interviews, but not on a consistent basis. And then I had it professionally looked over from the same person and she altered details so that it would be more captivating. There's also an algorithm that's a part of all of the resume submissions through most health fields. So I was taught how to use the words to be able to make certain things project on my resume. So you want it to look clean. You want it to be very easy to read, get the most important points on the resume. So having it professionally looked over, it gives you like that edge. What are you looking for? What is the algorithm trying to pull? And how am I going to beat that? Yeah, I was talking to a uh, recruiter the other day. She was like, Puno, I have five seconds and it's just one glance and it has to be clean. It has to be simple. It has to be concise. They're scanning for keywords. And if there's one spelling, one grammar issue out the door, easy, like, okay, you're not doing your due diligence. You're not being serious. You're not being serious. And you're not detail oriented. Yeah. And yeah. all these things that we put down on our resume are what they're looking for on your resume. Yeah. <laughs> It is a reflection. Yeah. Yeah. So you cannot be out of place with that. That got me in the door. That got me to 76 interviews. So I had it yeah. professionally done twice. So I had two different ones. And the difference was just wording and placement. But that's what it is. And that's what I needed. I didn't care about anything else. I needed to worry about how I was going to make money to pay back the school loans that come with nursing school. Yes. My goodness. How do you look at rejection and learn from it? Did you have a post-mortem every time with yourself and you're like, this is what we're going to do about this or this is what we're going to learn. Oh man. The harder ones are usually the ones where you're there for like maybe three or four hours where you're thinking you're going to get the job and then a week later, nothing happens. Usually if I felt it right in the moment that I knew I wasn't getting it, I was going for McDonald's right after that. <laughs> now imagine if I was doing two interviews a day, that's really bad. <laughs> when... I was rejected. It was more long times so of just calling my mom and calling my grandmother. She was the one that I would literally call on the phone and be like, Grandma, I'm not getting it. And she was like, oh, darling, don't worry. You'll get something. There'll be something else out there. And I used to hate when she said that. And I still hate when people tell me that. And when I told her I hated when she told me that, she was like, do you believe it? And I was like, I don't know. And she was like, but you have to believe that there's something it doesn't have to necessarily be a job. It has to be something that's out there for you. But you need to be intentional on what you want to manifest. So I would just write it down. I'm going to be a nurse in the ICU. I'm going to be a nurse in pediatrics. You wrote it down. You wrote it down on a piece of paper. Yes. Why was that so important for you? Because I had to set my intention on something. I wanted to go for an interview with a purpose. So even though I was applying to everywhere. 
my intention was to get to pediatrics, to get to ICU. If they attached where it's pediatric ICU, I would have been ecstatic. My intention was one of these places will give me a door to this. And that's all I kept believing. I worked as a camp health director. I worked as a case manager. These are all desk jobs, all behind the scenes. This is not like right up in front of anything. And then COVID hits. Yeah. And everyone knows the call for nurses was loud and widespread. In the process of that, my school was closing for COVID. We have no idea what was happening. And I was like, I'm going to start applying. I'm going to start doubling down on my applications again. And then Montefiore Medical Center posted their HR number asking for nurses to call. And I called and they said, could you be in tomorrow? And I was in the next day and I submitted my paperwork and this was all to HR. This wasn't to a unit and I'm getting asked if I would need anything and I'm telling everyone, no, I'm fine. I won't know what I would need until I'm on the floor. And I call my mentor and I was like, I got my ID badge to work as a floor nurse. And she's like, that's great. And I'm like, but what if they take it away? That's what I'm thinking. I just got through HR. But when the nurse manager sees me, she's going to say no, or something is going to block me from being a nurse. And she said to me, no, you have a badge. You've been hired. You remind them of that EEO statement that is on their website and how they are going to back it up. And I was like, okay, that's all I needed to hear if I was told that I wasn't welcomed. So facing rejection wasn't just about the interviews. It was also about what if my disability meant that I didn't belong at all, period. And dealing with that was how do I make sure that I have a voice? How do I ensure that I'm protected because this is my life? So everyone's thinking I'm running towards COVID. And yes, that was definitely my intention. But at the same time, it was about getting a job. It was like feeling like I was a human being. It was like feeling like I belonged. And it was like feeling like my degree actually meant something. Yeah. So what happened? You show up? I show up. My first night, I work the floor. People are surprised that I'm there, but they're happy for the help. And then the nursing director, she pulls me off the floor for a few minutes. And she says to me, have you ever worked a floor before? And I said, I've worked on the floors before. I've done all of this. Not only that, I have 25 years of experience being in a wheelchair. Were you angry or? I don't know if I was angry as much as I was disturbed. Like, this is the moment. Do I get mad or do I say something snippy? Because it's a protection thing for me when you're questioning my ability. And I really wanted to ask her if she had asked all the rest of the temporary nurses on the floor, have they ever worked a floor before? But decided to single me out and ask me that. So I was perturbed. Thank God we were all in masks so you couldn't see my face. (laughs) I gotta say, that PPE really helps sometimes. Like I had a mask on and I was able to keep it very like, yes, I can do the job. Mm -hmm. If you have questions, I suggest you go back to HR, let them address it. And that was it. She left me alone. I think she picked up on the, you shouldn't be asking me this. And for anybody who is ever feeling, it's like you don't know how to talk about things. I would find an HR consultant. There are so many. And just talk to them about how do you talk about this? Yeah. And the other part of that is 
just what do accommodations look like? What if I needed help? What would be the point of the nurse manager coming to me asking me if I can work a floor? Mm -hmm. There's no point to that question. The point should have been, hey, Andrea, I wanted to check in with you and see if you needed anything while you were here with us versus questioning my ability. You questioned my ability before you even put forth a welcome. Thank you for coming to help. And I knew it was coming from nursing school, from fighting to have access to lab tables for chemistry. Like these were all things leading up to that one moment where I had to say, I'm not only prepared, not only am I educated, I can do this. And I need you to back off for one minute. (laughs) Let me show you. Yeah. Like you don't even know me and you're questioning me. Just sometimes when you fight for something for so long and for so hard and it puts you through a roller coaster and you finally get there, do you feel like you glorified what you wanted or was it everything you wanted? It was everything I wanted. I was a patient for such a long time as a kid. Yeah. Going back to the hospital setting has somewhat of a comfort aspect there because I'm used to those walls. I'm used to those sounds. I've listened to them growing up almost six months time span every year. So going into that space, I'm not scared. And I know how to talk to patients because I understand what it means to be in that bed. I understand what it is to talk to family members because my family experienced it. So a lot of the fear that comes with being a new nurse goes along the side of not messing up, not knowing how to address patients, how to address illnesses or talk to doctors where I've learned that my whole life. (laughs) How long were you at that hospital? Yeah, I worked COVID and stepped on ICU at Montefiore until June. And that's when the contract ended because thankfully things got better here in New York. But here's the thing. I went back to school nursing, still looking for a hospital job. Like I love school nursing. I love where I'm at now, but I'm still in the same spot I was in before COVID. Yeah. We've talked so much about your perseverance in the job hunt. And it makes me really think about when you're in school. And I read that your school counselor doubted you and told you that you had three strikes against you. Can you explain that? Yeah, so I identify as a black female who happens to have a disability. Now, out of those three things, those are all in major minority brackets. Being a black woman means that I am at like the lowest for employment. Now let's add in disability. Disability means that I am a part of the largest and fastest growing minority in the world. It means that I are the highest for unemployment, the lowest for higher education achievement. So those stats play very heavily, just disability alone. Now add in the fact that I'm a woman and black, it means that I won't be able to achieve anything. That's what she was literally telling me. I'll be happy living off of Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security in a nutshell, and that I should be prepared for that. That's a very different conversation than your mom gave you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, completely different. But that's the beauty of my life is that my family gave me a solid foundation to be able to enter the world and say, no, Andrea, you know who you are. You know who you were raised to be. And no one else gets to decide that for you. I think the point of that is to keep speaking up until it's equal, until we have equity, until we have inclusion. And don't look at me like I'm a black woman with a disability, but see me for being a woman who happens to have a disability, who just happens to also have melanated skin and who happens to be a boss. (laughs) Yes. 
So you keep talking about this mentor. What's this mentor? How do you get that? Like, <laughs> so I think that we should definitely have a couple of mentors for what you want in employment, a life coach. So for me, I was lucky. I got one mentor from the disability world. His name is George Gallego, and he's the CEO of Wheels of Progress. I was going back to school and I was just trying to figure out who understood higher education for someone with a disability. He has degrees, so it was more along the lines of, do I need to tell someone about my disability? Who do I connect to? And he guided me. He was like, see if they have a diversity and inclusion office, see if they have uh, disability related services on the school, go talk to them, introduce yourself see what it is that they offer. And he was the one that kind of laid that groundwork for me. He was like, CUNY schools are good. These schools, you need to figure out what accessibility would look like. Make sure you go to campuses and check it out for yourself. Yes. I feel like you surround yourself with support. Oh, you have to. In life, <laughs> everyone has to. If you're surrounding yourself with people who are negative Nancys, come on. You need the mentors that are gonna tell you when you are dead wrong about saying something or doing something. Or the mentors that are gonna tell you, take 10 minutes to think it over. You still feel like yeah. sending that really bad email in the morning, then send it. Yeah. <laughs> or you need to have the ones that are going to encourage you to take the leap. So for me, it was more along the lines of, I didn't know if I wanted to keep going on interviews. I was sick of interviews at like 53. And George is like, then give up. What are we gonna do next? that led me back to, no, but I just finished nursing. What do you mean? And what am I doing? <laughs> that was a feat. And he was like, well, you don't want to do it anymore. So what next? And go back to my grandmother who was like, did you set your intentions? These are all things that kept going around in a circle and would just motivate you. That's such a great strategy to move past all of these doubters and naysayers that keep coming in your way. And you're just like arming yourself with people that are like on your team and know what you're capable of. And are just like, meh. Yeah. I'm just like imagining Avengers right now. Just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, you need a hype team. You, no one ever does it by themselves. I don't care what anyone says. No, you had people in your life that helped you, whether you realized it in that moment or not. You seem very comfortable with asking for help and asking for what you need. I think that comes with the disability. I was entering into a world that was built for disability. If I didn't want to ask for help, I needed to figure out how I was going to get it done. And if I couldn't figure out for myself, I needed to come up with a solution with someone else. So it's built in with disability. How can we shift our mindset around conversations like disability? Be willing to have them. Don't shy away from it. I think a lot of people in the disability community will say that when we're out in the world, we're either stared at, oh, what are they doing? Oh, they're getting in their car. Oh my goodness, they're in the grocery store and we're celebrated just for that. You can't just think of me as some modern marvel that's like, wow, technology has brought you this far. Yes, technology has brought me this far. Now, could you include me? Could you yeah. see me as a person? Could you have the conversation with me and just realize that me rolling around on wheels and you walking is no different. So parents who are usually don't stare, don't say anything about, why don't you tell your kids to go ask? And in that same manner, why don't you go ask if they're too shy? Mm. Right? Or as adults, and we're saying, well, I don't want to ask anything. That's rude. No, I'd rather you ask me than assume. Assuming is the rude part because you have no idea. Assumptions really are the worst. Yeah. Yeah. 
I read somewhere that you said, it's not if you have a disability, it's when. What did you mean by that? Any point in life, we will have a disability. That might not be permanently, that could be temporarily. We've all known a friend that's broken a foot, maybe used the cast. We all have grandparents, right? So we understand that disability might not necessarily mean wheelchair, but disability could mean anything. I mean, that you can't get up to the second level of your home, that you might not be able to communicate. And are you prepared for that? No one's prepared for that because we have this superhuman complex saying that nothing's going to happen to us. And I'm not saying to change your lifestyle in this moment, but then be an ally to those that are speaking up now saying that they're not getting what they need. And it's true. I mean, everybody is at some point in their life going to have some kind of disability. Yeah. You know, when someone acquires a disability, it becomes a moment of reflection. It's like, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. And the solutions that are being offered to you are not solutions that you automatically see included in your world. So then you can't even fathom yourself using it or doing it. So then comes in the self-hatred or the depression and everything else. And that's why it's so important for inclusion and just simple human respect. And if we can't be an ally to them, how do we expect to have them be an ally to us when we need it. Right. Especially when they're your nurse. (laughs) (laughs) When they're your nurse. (laughs) So I wanted to actually talk a little bit about Seated Position Foundation. Why did you feel this foundation was so necessary after the ADA was established? Oh my goodness. I think the seated position needed to be in place because a student doesn't need to decide whether or not they can continue school or whether or not their disability allows them to continue in school. How does it work? Do you bring in people and then help them through higher education to get a job in any industry or? So there's two parts to this that I'm going to be working on. The first part right now is those who have acquired a disability after their degree and are trying to figure out how do they enter back into the workforce. So we're going to be partnering with corporations to provide training services to these individuals and then hopefully guarantee them a job within the company. And those who are in high school, we'll be looking to acclimate them into higher education. It's like your mentor on steroids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All of them. Yeah, all of your mentors just like, okay, everything that you guys did for me, I'm putting this in Seated Position Foundation. That's great. So what do you need for Seated Position Foundation to grow? How can we help you as listeners? So if you are an organization, a corporation, anyone that wants to train or help, you're more than welcome to come in and help with us. The point is so that these individuals have a well-rounded access point for resource. We're no longer telling them that they can or will not. We're giving you the tools to be able to become. So what's an example of a company, for instance, I Love Creatives, my company. How could we help? One, it was me wanting to get to know your company, right? What is Mm -hmm. that you do? What are you looking to do? Now, out of my pool, who do I know loves computers, right? And maybe you would be willing to help someone else learn. That individual would be mentored underneath you, and then you would be their reference. And then we'd send them out to Google or any other company that'd be willing to hire or you yourself being that you gave the services, would you be willing to take them on for a year as an intern? Hell yeah, let's do this. After this call, I'm all like, yeah, (laughs) I'm down. So it's like an apprenticeship. 
Almost. Yeah, I, we should definitely talk. <laughs> well, so we have one question from the community. It's been hard for me to get a job. I'm just so curious if there's any advice that you have for me. If you love it and this is where you want to be, just know that that's your yes automatically. So you can't listen to the naysayers. Anyone that's rejecting you right now, okay, that's their problem. Mm -hmm. So don't give up on that. The second part of that is go on LinkedIn and start looking up the recruiters. Yes. Start looking those recruiters up. Since I found you on LinkedIn, I am looking for this job I'm currently interested in. I've seen this on your website. Is there any way that you can guide me or help me so that I can get this particular position? That is such great advice. I don't think people realize how much recruiters are the gatekeepers in all of this. And if you can befriend a recruiter, they will look out for you. Mm -hmm. And they'll tell you your resume looks like shit and you need to like redo it. <laughs> they will also tell you this might not be the best place for you. And mm -hmm. you have to decipher from that how much you want to take as criticism. Because remember, again, your yes is the most important part. So once you're validated in what you want to do, no one can tell you different. You're saying that they're telling you to fix the way you're answering these questions, change your resume your skills aren't good enough, then fix it. Get your skills, yeah. go take a class, go shadow something. And if someone's saying, oh, you're absolutely just not gonna happen, start talking to the people who are already in the field. Find their social media handles, look them up on LinkedIn, send messages, send emails. And don't just send an email saying, I'm looking for a job. Send an mm -hmm. email saying, I am so-and-so, I went to school here, I am looking for your advice. If you can help me in any way, do you have consulting and be willing to pay? I know a lot of people mm -hmm. are like, I'm not paying for anything. Sometimes you need to pay a consultant. You need to talk to someone who has the expertise. School is way more expensive than that. <laughs> right. Pay for someone's advice. Yeah. Sometimes you need someone that's going to know more than you and will be able to help guide you. And that information doesn't come free sometimes. You never know that person might be your biggest advocate and might have the connections that will land you what you want. I value people's time, their experience, just like I hope to be valued as well. Exactly. Yeah, again, that's just simple human respect. I'm seeing you, I value you, I'm meeting you where you are at. And that's all we all ask for. At Girlboss, one of the things that we're trying to do right now is redefine what success is. And so what is your version of success? How has that changed when you were just starting out to now? Ooh, growing up, I put this emphasis on money and I quickly realized that there was never going to be enough money to determine my success because money can come and go. I have my education. My mother was right. No one can take that away from me. The moment I keep educating myself and the moment I keep speaking up, more people's lives are being touched through me. I didn't overcome my disability, but I was able to overcome the obstacles placed in my way because of my disability, people's perceptions of me. So if you want to base my success right now, it'd be based on the education that I've been able to acquire over the last six, seven years. Just being able to say that I am an educated black woman who happens to have a disability and who happens to be on Girl Boss right now. Thank you. Ah. Success. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, Andrea. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. And congratulations on everything that you've done so far. Thank you. I am looking forward to everything to come. Like this is just still very much at the beginning. So if you want to learn more about Andrea and her work as a disability rights activist, just scroll on down to the links in our show notes. That's girlboss.com backslash podcast. And the number one way that you can support Girlboss Radio is by hitting that good old subscribe button or smash it or whatever. And if you're feeling super inspired, write us a review. Plus, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter, The Girlboss Daily. Not only is it bursting with some actionable career advice, you'll even get the insider scoop on some really cool job postings and get the chance to put some of Andrea's advice into action. Girl Boss Radio is a production of I Love Creative Studio. Original music composed by Nija. This episode was produced by Juliana Clark and Carly Pryor with help from Imani Leonard. Engineering was done by Stephanie Aguilar. And our editorial director is Clemence. Special thanks to Taylor, Nora Agency, and Kaylee. Until next Tuesday, see ya. See ya.